We are in John 19, right? So we're, see we're making progress. Two chapters left, so we'll finish 19 next week. Then we will take a break for Easter. Oop, I'm going to break that. Uh, we'll take a break for Easter on the 20th. Come back on the 27th, do John 20. And Danny Combs, do you all know Danny? He's the youth pastor here. Yeah, yeah, so he's going to be preaching here the 27th, and I'll be preaching for the youth. We're going to flip-flop, and then the, 20, uh, the May the 4th is the last cross point, the week before finals for you guys, and that's when we'll do John 21, be done with John. Uh, so uh, we're going to be in the first verse of John 19 tonight. I think this text has the potential to be uh, man, a little heavy. Let's say that. So, um, before we jump in, uh, something that I've noticed uh, as I was sort of thinking through this text uh, is I didn't I didn't have a lot of suffering in my life growing up. I got you know lived in the suburbs, had a, a great parents, um, good childhood. Uh, most of the things bad that happened to me uh, were because of me. Uh, they weren't because of outside influences. Um, you know, I mean, the, the typical things like my grandmother passed away that I was really close to, but it, it, you, you sort of can grapple with that sort of suffering. It's not gratuitous. It's not sort of needless. You know, you expect grandparents to pass away, and so you sort of grapple with that sort of thing uh, in a healthy way, I think. Um, but the more... I have, you know, uh, the more I'm a pastor and the more I get to hear people's stories uh, and the more I take, down, take time to just sit down and listen to people's stories, uh, the more that I am, let's say, surprised. I'm growing less and less surprised, but I, I think I grow surprised uh, at the amount of suffering that people have endured just at your age. Like, my guess is, not all of you have had sort of very easy upbringing and a very easy great parents who loved you and told you that you were valuable and they cared for you. You know what I mean? And the more people I hear their stories, the more I just see like suffering is widespread and normal. Uh, and, and, and well, that sucks. Um, one, but I guess, I, I guess it's, I don't know how else to say it. Um, it's not something that I expected coming into this, but just the more and more and the longer that I do this, the more I'm just struck by there is gratuitous suffering on our planet and not just on our planet, but in your life. And when I say gratuitous, I mean needless suffering. I mean like being taken advantage of by people who are supposed to protect you. That's sort of like, you don't expect that and it's not supposed to be that way. Outside of the normal pattern for life. Uh, and do, do y'all know the band Tool? Do y'all know that band? Yeah? Is it, sorry. I haven't listened to them in a while. But as I was thinking about this, uh, the song that I used to listen to all the time before I was a believer, and a little bit after I was a believer, um, Tool is, an, is, is not just atheist, they're anti-theist, I would say. Um, they've got this. Oh man, I didn't bring it. I didn't bring the lyrics with me. That's okay. I know most of the lyrics. They've got this song called "Ride in Two. 
Um, and it is so accurately depicts life on our planet. And he's got these lyrics where he says, like, angels on the sidelines, puzzled and confused. Why did Father give these humans free will? And now, uh, and now they're all confused. And then he goes into this sort of hook over and over. Monkeys killing monkeys, killing monkeys over pieces of the ground. Uh, he gave them thumbs and they forged blades to cut their brother down. And then he says, don't these silly monkeys know that Eden has enough to go around? That there's plenty in this holy garden. But they cut each other down. And, and it just is like, it's so... <laughs> coming from a place that you wouldn't expect, but so accurately depicts life on planet Earth that I think we're sort of removed from most of the time. That if you, uh, some of you guys are history majors, not a lot of you, but some of you are. <laughs> uh, and if you look at the history of the world, it's usually divided uh, based on wars and conquests. To, to put it like very rudely, monkeys killing monkeys over pieces of the ground. Uh, fights for power. Insane amount of destruction and suffering. Uh, and, um, and, and what I've noticed is, is that, because uh, I was a history major, that the predominant amount of suffering on the planet uh, the predominant amount of human suffering on the planet is the product of other humans. Uh, so I do, yeah, we've got these natural disasters that come through and, you know, people die and it's sad. But most of the real gratuitous suffering that happens on the planet uh, is human-on-human -human interaction. Um, and, and I think we see that, right? I think we see that. And I think a lot of you have seen that growing up and you hear stories uh, you, you know, read about the Holocaust, maybe. You read about what went on in Cambodia. Uh, you know, what's going on right now. Uh, God, where is it? All right. Yeah, right? All the crazy stuff in Ukraine. But there was other, like, they're using that serum nerve gas. Anyway, there's, there's, you look at that, and then part of you cries out against God, Right? You see the suffering on the planet. You see the human suffering, or you see the, the suffering in your own life, and, and something in you says, this is wrong and not right. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And then something turns in you and looks at God and says, if you are God, and if you exist, and you are powerful, why don't you do something about this? You have the ability and apparently you've got the desire to do it. So why, like, what the heck, man? Like, what are you doing? And, and I, think, I think that was in me for a while. And, and I, I mean, if you interact with any sort of suffering, if you just read about it and it perks your heart, you're, there's something in you that says, God, like, what are you doing? You can fix this. And so when you lay that idea... And I'm sorry we're going to go here, but we have to. Don't know where else to go. When you lay that sort of depiction of suffering on top of the creation narrative, something really comes to light. 
is that as much as I want to cry out at God and say, what the heck, why don't you fix this? Why don't you get rid of all the suffering and make this place right again? Uh, as, as you lay that idea on top of the creation narrative, what the creation narrative is telling us and what we've been saying over and over, and if you don't get anything else from John, the one thing that you are going to get is that when, when God created humanity, He created us as more than just passive puppets on the planet. He created us with the capacity to know Him, understand Him, be with Him, and then as we are with Him, understanding Him, caught up in the relationship with the Trinity, in full knowledge of who He is, we are supposed to take that knowledge and relationship and manifest His name to the earth. It was man's job to take what the garden was like and bring it to the ends of the earth. This is what we keep talking about over and over. To fulfill the, no, fill the earth, subdue it, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What that means is not go take advantage of the planet and kill whatever you want and mine all you want and suck everything you can out of the planet. What it was is go, like we've been saying, you're alive with the Creator. Now go and cultivate life on the planet to bring the glory of God to the earth. To bring the will of God to the earth. This is why when we said a thousand times, Jesus prays, He tells His disciples, the first thing He tells His disciples, pray like this, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, presupposing that the will of God and the kingdom of God is not on the earth in the same way that it is in the heavens. And the reason that is is because of humanity. So what we see in the fall of man is what we see in Genesis 2. Uh, so that human suffering has much to do with the first human's decision not to go about life in the way that God had prescribed. Not to put God in the middle and us in relationship with Him and then bring His will and His kingdom to the earth. Bring His sovereignty to the earth. I would even go as far as to say that. Not to do that, but to reject that. And when humans rejected that, when the first man, when Adam rejects that, um, the system broke. The system of... Know God, be with God, and manifest His name, His character, His mercy, His kindness, His love, His way of being. Manifest that to the earth. The system was broken. Um, the system that we were created to govern was broken. Uh, and, and we don't get much of an explanation of what it is that precisely happened in man other than just the relationship being broken, we don't get much else that, it, that explains fully like, this is why when you set out to do good, a lot of times you find yourself unable. And so the creation narrative doesn't really explain much. It just really shows you really quickly that everything starts to unravel. Right? Everything starts to unravel. The very next thing that happens is a guy, you know, a guy kills his own brother. And then some guy kills this other kid for just wounding him and then develops into the Noah story, right? So you're just seeing it just starts to get worse and worse and worse until God, after six chapters, looks down and says, again, enough. The violence of men on the planet is, is enough. And so it's like he almost hits the reset button. Um, 
And all we see from, you know, the beginning of Genesis is that something went wrong. Something went really, really wrong. And it's something that can't be fixed easily. Uh, that, no, that education isn't going to fix it. Not teaching people isn't going to fix the problem that's going on inside of humanity and laws. We create the right government. It's not going to fix what's going on inside of humanity. Philosophy, we create the right philosophy. It's not going to fix what's going on in humanity. Like at the core, you all know and understand and have seen that when you set out to do good and you set out to be good and you set out to do right with the best of intentions, that saying says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. What is it in us? Like, what is it precisely in us that just can't be what God called us to be? Can't do that sort of thing that we've been talking about? Why can't I just be in right relationship with God and cultivate life on the earth the way it was sort of simply planned out? Um, and so we see that there's something in us so as we cry out to God, do something about this. There's all this suffering going on. Why don't you come down and fix it? And so God's response is, I very much intend on fixing it. I very much intend on it. The problem is, is that when I go about fixing it, it's going to destroy all the humans on the planet. Because the cause for human suffering on the planet is predominantly other humans. And it's not just some that do bad things. It's some that do bad things and then others that think bad things but never do them. Some that have been sort of conformed to societal norms and so they never break outside that box. But still inside of them is the same thing that's inside of Hitler, that's inside of Pol Pot, that's inside of all these people who are just heinous in history. The same thing is in me that was in them. They just found a way around it to do whatever they want, and I'm just sort of like scared and insecure and fearful, so I'm not going to go like try to take over East Germany or something. You know what I mean? The same thing that exists in man exists in all men, and societal norms can curb it a little bit. Education can curb it. Laws can curb it, uh, but nothing fixes it. And so uh, two things we need to draw out of tonight is... Um, I'm keeping track of this. Two things we need to draw out tonight are what's God's response? What's, what's God's response to human suffering? And then why is that his response to human suffering? Um, and I want to get beyond with this simple answer like Jesus the cross, right? Um, so this is where we're going to jump in here uh, in John 19. So we've seen in John what's just happened, just what's happened over the last like 12 hours in John, um, is that Jesus had finished his last teaching with his disciples. He prays over his disciples. And then in this garden, here come the high priest's guards led by one of his disciples who betrays him. Uh, and Jesus is taken. You see, it looks like it's by his own will. He just says, yeah, you've come for me. Okay, let's go. And remember, Peter's acting all crazy, and he cuts off somebody's ear, and then Jesus is like, Peter, stop freaking out. Uh, I'm going to have to do this. And so Peter's all confused. Uh, and then we see Peter uh, follow Jesus to the trials where Jesus is tried in the middle of the night, which is against Jewish law. So we're seeing this is pretty shady. Uh, and then we see Peter sort of denying Jesus to this servant girl and this other guy and then Jesus really standing up to the high priest and saying like everything I've said I've said it boldly and I've said it in front of everybody and nothing has been outside of the uh, of the the teaching of scripture and so we see them sort of 
change hands. He gets tried by three different people, and right now he's on his last trial. He's taken from the Jewish Pharisees, and now he's in front of Pilate, who is the governor of the area, who is uh, a Roman governor. So Rome governed this portion of the world at this time. Uh, and so the Pharisees, what we saw last week, is the Jewish people, they're not able, they are unable to try people to death. They're, able, they're unable, they are, it's, not, it's not legal for them to put people to death, so they need Pilate to put Jesus to death, which they really are looking to do. Okay, so let's jump in. We're going to read a few verses, I'm gonna, we're going to jump out, and then we're going to jump back in and read, read the rest of this. Uh, okay, so... What's just happened is, remember we looked at last week, Pilate doesn't really want to crucify Jesus, but he sort of feels compelled. Uh, and so he comes to the Jewish people and he's like, now there's this other guy, Barabbas. How about I, how, I, I've got to release one of these people to you. I'm going to either release Jesus to you or I'm going to release Barabbas, uh, the robber, insurrectionist. One of the, and so the people cry out, release Barabbas, we want Barabbas. And so now we see Jesus on the road to crucifixion. Um, but there's going to be one more interaction that we need to look at before he's crucified. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. I'll just pull out. Uh, this, to me, is the answer. I don't remember who sang it, but that absurd song in the 90s. What, what if God was one of us? You know that song? This is the answer to that. The answer to what if God was one of us? What if God was a human? This is what we would do to him. We would conspire together to get rid of him. And then in private, we would strip him of his clothes. We would put a crown of thorns on his head. We would put a purple robe on him to mock him because he says that he's the king and he has all authority. We would wrap him in a robe and then mock him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. And we would beat him. And then what Matthew would tell us is we would rip out his beard and we would flog him with a cat of nine tails until you couldn't recognize him. That's what... So when we say there's that thing in humanity that causes other humans to suffer, we're going to see it picture perfect in this text. So if God was one of us, this is what we would do to him. And so we have to drop in and see what is God, why is Jesus doing this? Why? So I think the first thing, God's first response, uh, God's first response to human suffering is not to stand back from it, 
but to enter into it. And not just enter into it with us, but to enter into it for us. What is so crazy about this crown of thorns? The, the reason I brought up Genesis again for the 12th time this month is we were supposed to be the stewards of the king on this planet. You're supposed to reign and rule with authority from God over this earth. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. When we failed to do that and rejected that, what, we do, what, what happens is we see in, in man's curse. What is man's curse? That he will still have to do that which he was set out to do, to try to fill the earth and subdue it. But as he goes about doing that, the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. So we see in Jesus, with this crown of thorns, this incredibly symbolic crown. It is a crown that symbolizes our purpose and the result of us rejecting that purpose. The result being the thorns that we brought forth from the planet as we were trying to do that which God calls us to do. But when we rejected it, instead of bringing life from the earth, we brought forth thorns and thistles. And so I imagine, I imagine, and I only imagine this because it's not in the text, that if God was not gracious in the beginning, so if in Genesis 3, God comes, finds Adam and Eve and says, okay, so you didn't want to do it the way it sort of had set out, so I set up this really sweet place for you uh, where the, the work that you do actually doesn't war against you and it goes quite easily. So I set this up and it's really quite, and you want to reject that? And so instead of God being gracious um, and giving and merciful and actually saying, okay, we're going to fix this and killing an animal and clothing Adam and Eve in the skin of an animal. Instead of doing that, what if God said, no, I'm going to give you what you deserve here. Now let's, let's be done with the mercy thing. What would God do? I imagine what God would have done would have taken the thorns that man had cultivated and put them around his head and been like, hey, this is what you're supposed to be a king. So I'm going to give you a crown, right? What is happening to Jesus is in my mind exactly what God should have done to Adam, what God should have done to us in the very beginning. If, if God was a just God who was not merciful, that's what He would have done. Oh, you, you're going to cultivate life? Cool, here's this. Let me, you're supposed to be a king? Yeah, let me wrap your head in the, in the right kind of crown. So this crown of thorns is just a symbol that Jesus is standing in the place. The Creator God is standing in the place of what humanity deserved. He's standing in the place and He's saying, I'll, I'll receive that. I'll receive that. Because when God killed that animal in the garden to clothe Adam and Eve, all it did was delay punishment. It didn't fix the issue. That's what we saw play out over and over and over. Is yeah, God comes, but He doesn't fix the issue there. He does an act that points to what will fix the issue. He does an act of slaying an animal, and then the Israelites have to portray this act year after year after year after year after year after year. And that's why John is saying over and over and over, it was Passover, it was Passover, it was Passover. This is the night of Passover, because at Passover is when the Jews would take a spotless lamb and kill it and let its blood out to cover their sins for the year. To cover their sins for the year. 
And he's saying it's Passover, it's Passover, it's Passover. Because all these things that God had done to cover their sin, that never fixed their sin, was pointing to the way in which God would fix their sin and not just cover it anymore. So, the first response of God is not just to come alongside the suffering, but to come in it for us. To take what we were due for us. So as much as I see suffering and I want to cry out and be like, why don't you do something? He's like, <laughs> bro, you have no idea. You have no idea. I created you, you rebelled, and now I take your punishment, and you're like, I'm not doing anything? Seriously? That's what, that's what he, he's sort of sarcastic with me. Um, all right, let's keep going, let's keep going. Let me hash this out real quick. Yeah, 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 okay. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. There's so much in there. We're not even going to draw it out. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. So Pilate trots him out, beat and bloodied, mocked with this crown of thorns on his head and this purple robe, and that's it. Just after he's had the cat of nine tails, what's it, they call it, uh, tw- I can't remember, but it's, it's enough lashings to almost kill you. And trots him out, and I think Pilate's hope is, if I show them that I beat the crap out of him, Maybe they won't try to get me to crucify him because Pilate is feeling really, really uncomfortable about crucifying Jesus. And the only reason he's even thinking about it is because the Jewish leaders are trying to force him to. And what the Jewish leaders are basically saying, if you don't kill him, we are going to appeal to Rome to have you removed. Or we're just going to start a riot. And if we start a riot, Pilate will be removed because there were always riots going on and Rome had told Pilate, you better subdue these things. Pilate ruled crazy with an iron fist. He would kill Jews and mix pig's blood with, with their blood and offer it on their sacrifice. Like Pilate didn't play games. He just did not play games. He is known in history for being ruthless. And we're seeing him here now like cowering to the Pharisees and then even a little fearful of Jesus. So he brings them out, and they are not appeased. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So he grabs Jesus. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus, who is always witty, answered him, You, should, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. It's almost like he's telling Pilate, look, I know you're feeling weird and guilty about this, but go ahead, 
they're more guilty than you. It's like he's giving him a pass almost. Almost like, hey, first she like sort of rubs it in his face. Like, I'm not even going to answer you. I don't even care what you're going to say. And then Pilate's like, don't you know I can crucify you? And he's like, don't you know the only authority you have is what's been given to you? And anyway, they're more guilty than you anyway. So it's, it's almost like saying, so crucify me, bro. Like, jump. Like, it's, he's crazy. He's crazy. Um, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Let's stop there before we get to the very end. Jesus like, is, is like pushing Pilate to do this thing. And then he's saying, Pilate, you've been given authority from heaven to do this. Okay, so we've really got to hash out real quick. I'll think a little bit deeper. Why is it, why is it that God's response to human suffering is to enter into it and be a replacement? Like, why is it that, that God wishes to do it this way? God can do anything He wants. Can't He just look at us and say, like, poof. You're not sinful anymore. And you're perfect. And all that bad stuff is okay. Don't worry about it. You're good. And we're all going to go to heaven. Can't, can't he do that? Can't he do that? Can't he just say, hey, no more suffering. It's over. Like a little magic wand. I think if we begin to understand what's going on at a deep level with God and why he's choosing to play it out this way, man, I think there's a thousand reasons why. I think, one, God is really showing who he is. Like, I am down. I am down to give you life. I am down to restore this that you destroyed. I'm down to fix this thing. And I just don't want to fix it. I don't want to just come in and fix it. I want to fix the real problem that is causing all the other problems. I don't just want to erase everything and be like, hey, nothing happened. There's a reason that the suffering is existing. There's a reason why things are going wrong. You who are supposed to be the steward of the earth are a bad and terrible steward. And I don't just want to remove you and fix the problem. I want to fix you so that as you steward the earth, you begin to bring life to it again. We brought up Romans 8 before that the creation groans, all of creation groans, longing and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed because when the sons of God are revealed, what that means is that we are made new again and we actually become able to be the stewards that we were created to be. And we actually begin to give life to the planet once again and when I say the planet I mean humans and everything else in the physical realm so we're seeing this crisscross come together and the way I wrote it down I don't know it would seem that God is in a bit of a tight spot he has this incredibly deep love for mankind on the one hand Incredibly deep love. He's a loving, gracious, merciful God. But he also 
is infinite and perfect in justice, who desires to give what is due to those who deserve it. In the same way that we would look at a judge who does not convict the guilty and release the innocent, we would look at that sort of judge and we would say, you are a bad judge. When murderers come in here, you let them go. And when innocent people come here, you throw them in jail. We would look at that and cry out and say, this is wrong and not just. This is an incorrect way of ruling. And then so we've got on the one hand a deep love for mankind and on the other hand a deep and perfect justice. How does God remain just and yet justify the wicked whom he incidentally loves very much? And then on the, I mean, you've got these other things. He has this desire to see humanity do that which he created humanity to do, and he has this desire to not have any more suffering. It hurts him more than it hurts you. He is infinite, lo- in, infinite in love, infinite in mercy. Do you think the human suffering that's going on on the planet is affecting you and your sensibilities more than it's affecting the Creator who created humans? So he's got this deep desire to see humanity fulfill its purpose, to be with him and cultivate life, and then this other desire like, I'm so tired of what y'all are doing. I'm so tired of it. It's killing everything. You got all these. And here is how God chooses to tie it up. I will administer justice, but I'll administer justice on my son who has decided to do this for mankind. My son will become a man and fulfill the purpose of mankind. As he fulfills the purpose of mankind in perfect relationship with his father and cultivating life wherever he goes, lives in the perfect relationship just as the first man was meant to do. I believe that's what John means when Pilate brings him out and he says, Behold the man. Idu ha anthropos. Behold the man. Find no guilt in him. So we've got Jesus fulfilling all that mankind was intended to do, and the only one who has ever done that now takes on the punishment for all men. And in so doing, what happens is that humanity, a human, me, myself, now can, by his death, be seen as righteous in the eyes of my Father who is still just and still loves me, can forgive me and remain just because because justice has been administered on His Son who decided to take that for me. And then, because His life was lived perfectly, what the Bible says is that I am so associated with Him that I am crucified with Him and I'm resurrected with Him and I'm clothed in His life so that everything wrong that I have done has been washed away, pushed away, forgotten and forgiven, and all of the perfect life of Jesus is clothed around me so that when the Father sees me, I'm restored back into this relationship with Him once again. And inside of this relationship, that thing in me that makes me so terrible and the thing in you that makes you so terrible can now once again begin to be healed because we've been brought back into the relationship with the Father, the Creator, the Healer, and the Giver of Life. 
where we could not have that happen outside of relationship with him because we were outside of a relationship with him that, that was impossible to mend again because of the list of wrongs against us that we have committed against him and against his creation and against each other. So when it seems like God's in a tight spot, it's like, no. What the Bible says is, yeah, this plan from the very, very beginning that he knew humans would do what they did. And as they did what they did, he just began to trot out his plan, knowing that I'll put this tree in the garden and when they eat from it, I know it's going to cost me a ton. That I'm going to have to go to the earth that they're going to put this crown of thorns around me and they're going to poke me and prod me and rip my beard and beat me. And I'll do it. Because in this way, justice and mercy come together. And in this way, purpose and suffering are healed. In this way, God redeems and sets on a course that was going downhill. Now at Jesus, it's coming uphill until the day that he returns and makes it like it was supposed to be in the end where the sons of God are revealed, we are perfected, where we don't have that thing that drives us to selfishness, that drives us to selfish ambition, that drives us to hurt and use and manipulate other people. We don't have that thing anymore. It's healed and redeemed. And it's healed and redeemed because we're brought back into relationship with a creator who can do those sorts of things. So let me, let me hash this out and finish this up real quickly. Uh, so, verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, bringing it up again. We're going to hash out Passover a ton next week. Uh, it was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him crucify him this is the creator this is the word that was in the beginning with God and was God and everything that was made was made by him and he came to his own and his own did not receive him this is exactly what John is talking about in John 1 that behold your king and the Jews his own people say away with him away with him crucify him and then this is just this is, the, this is crazy. The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the culmination of irony for John. God's earthly representatives, the Pharisees, God's earthly representatives who are supposed to know God best and worship Him alone are taking God and crucifying Him, rejecting Him, and at the same time pledging their allegiance to the Roman emperor who is actively oppressing them. Actively putting guards in and tax collectors to take their money and rule oppressively over them. The Pharisees are saying and pledging their allegiance. These are the, this is the embodiment of those who know and understand all of this. They, some of these people that are saying this would have had all of the first five books of the Bible memorized. These are the earthly representatives of God who are supposed to know Him best, worship Him alone, and now have God in the flesh in front of Him, and they're saying, away with Him, away with Him, crucify Him. We have no king but Caesar. 
This is crazy. It's crazy. And so it just leads me to this place that I want to just I want to bring up for a second. I don't want to dive too deeply in this. I just want to like sort of bring it to light and see if we see it. The sacrifice of Jesus, uh, his offer to you as a human to be healed and set free, to be in right relationship with the Father, is not something that he forces on you. It is not something that he says, this is happening for everybody whether you like it or not. And I think what's going on here I think what's going on at a deep level here is we're seeing, we're seeing the Pharisees in their humanity and we're seeing Pilate in his fear and how he can see and understand and know that this man is innocent and still punish him because he is so fearful of the Jews and what they're going to do. What are the Jews going to do? Well, they're going to remove all the things that are valuable to him. His place as a Roman governor, his goodwill with Rome, why the Pharisees? Why do they have this guy who's healing people, healing the blind, doing good works? Why do they want this guy crucified so bad? Why do they want God crucified? Because if they listen to him, they lose a lot of what they hold as valuable. So this big part of us saying that Jesus is king and Jesus is Lord is that we're placing him as more valuable than everything else. And so what I'm afraid of a lot of times uh, in my own life on a daily basis, in the life of us as Christians, is that oftentimes, because we haven't fully rejected him, we're not looking at him and saying, away with you, God, away with you, God. But what we have a tendency to do is to use God to fulfill something in us that we believe is more valuable than him. Even though we agree and accept that Jesus is this guy who is the Messiah, who rose from the dead, and you know he's going to get my ticket into heaven or whatever, we have this notion that Jesus is still supposed to sort of provide me with the things that I expect him to provide me with. Uh, and so just the question that I want to put out there, the question I want to ask and I want you to interact with is very simply and almost too flatly, is he Lord or is he just somebody you agree is God so that he might get you your own ends? Is there something else that is of more value to you that God is just a means to an end? And then when it comes down to it, you'll say, I want this sort of away with you. And that if you take this from me, I'll be done with you is really more like it. Is following God about what he provides to you and not about him being the Lord of all creation that you submit to and say, wherever you go, let's go. Wherever you're going to lead, let's lead. I'm going to follow whatever it costs me, wherever that leads, whether it leads me into a life of ease or a life of suffering, like I'm going to go. Or is it God's going to make me whole because what's most valuable to me is my wholeness. Or God's going to make me, I'm going to say healthy, wealthy, the American dream, security, financial security. I don't know. 
what is it that you're working for? What is it you're striving for? Because I think at the heart of that, you might see that it's very easy to take God from being an end and just make him a means to another end. And I think it happens like way easier than you, you imagine. I think it happens on a daily basis. It's not like a one-time decision where I say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Like I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and there are going to be things that I want to do and I'm going to value higher than Jesus himself. And so the question is on a daily basis, are we saying, no, 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 you are Lord and I am going to follow um, and these things that I want, yeah, I'll agree with you that I want them, but I submit them all to you, and if you take them from me, you are still king, and you are still Lord, and I'm still going to follow, and I'm not going to freaking like, go crazy on you when you take from me the things that I, that I hold dear. I think that's what he's calling us to, because Jesus is about to take from Pilate what he held most dear. He's going to take from the Pharisees what they held most dear, and they were like, no, no, no. When it comes down to it, away, away with you.